Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference attendees say is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live Tuesdays through Thursday. You get the same amount of mouthwash, don't worry. We're just spreading it over the middle of the week. Uh, It's a reflection of the times and changing world of work, which is good because that's our theme for this season of mouthwash, the real future of work. This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me uh, from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink, uh, two brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists, to TikTok superstars. Um, you can check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash over at mouthwashshow.com. And I'm incredibly proud to say that we're sponsored again this season, this time by the folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and uh, you can make your place of work a great place to work. Just visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very cool stuff indeed. Um, Ecology are also back. They plant a tree for every live listener in the space uh, and that goes into the TBD forest. We're over 15,000 trees at the moment, so very going strong. Um, If you're looking to reduce your all your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com and start planting your tree. And they spell it with an I at the end. So it's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Now's a great time also to share the space, get a few more people in always. Uh, more trees, more trees, as they say. If you look to the bottom of your screen, you click the blue plus button, um, you'll be able to uh, tell the world you found something good. Everyone you get into the space means another tree in the world. And I think you'll agree that's no bad thing. So, yeah. Also, we are a feedback friendly show. So if you want to ask a question, just DM me or use the mouthwash show or one word hashtag and I'll pick it up from there. It's uh, going to be recorded for the podcast. So, uh, yeah, we don't hand the mic over. But, yeah, we, we're, we're very open to uh, DMs and hashtags. So feel free. OK, on to tonight's guest. Joining me today from London is Julia Hobsbawm, OBE. Julia is a master connector entrepreneur, consultant, event organiser, speaker and author of over seven books, including The Mutz Applauded Simplicity Principle. Um, Her work has been in The Economist, FT, and she gives talks at tiny organisations like the European Union and Google. Google's work, uh, Julia's work, focuses around connectedness in modern working life. Awarded an OBE for service to business in 2015, Julia founded and runs networks and content businesses, Editorial Intelligence, that's where I found out about her, and also their social mobility arm, the Social Capital Network. The latest book, which we're talking about today, The Nowhere Office, is getting rave reviews and explores the emerging world of work, hybrid working, and how to create workspaces and workplaces for the future. The Nowhere Office always has a pop- uh, also has a popular podcast and Substack that you can subscribe to over at Substack, but you can find everything about Julia over at juliahobsbaum.co.uk, and that's J-U-L-I-A-H-O-B-S-B-A-W-M.co.uk. So there's everything there, should you need it. Welcome to Mouthwash, Julia. What did I miss out of your bio? Hello. Well, thanks for the big up. Um, I'm sitting in my little nowhere office, my living room. Uh, good to be talking to you. It's .com at the end of my 
URL. That would be my only correction. Otherwise, oh, it was flawless. <laughs> apologies. Easy to find. It, you know, everyone's easy to find in a in a social era. So. Do you know what? You've, you've done the right thing and you've got the .co.uk as well. That's why I thought I copied it because I always make sure I don't get them wrong. But yeah, so you've got oh, both. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Either so or. One get all the traffic. One forwards to the other. Okay. <laughs> Love it. Um, so tell me, uh, I ask everyone this, uh, when uh, we, we sort of first start, um, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Oh, um, I thought it's going to be a good but busy day is what I thought because I'm doing what quite a lot of people are doing which is gingerly going back out into work spaces and meetings and offices and at the same time still having quite a lot of um, you know teleconference based meetings so I feel like a lot of us you know we're all feeling our way back to work Mm. post-pandemic um so in fact I went and had a meeting at Google um and then I went in a sort of you know trotted around London to different locations in and out of uh hotels private members clubs and offices quite a good illustration of what I call the nowhere office era which is a single office is nowhere is 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 nowhere alone in being the place you work from that's a perfect example, isn't it? Do you think that there is um, that that sort of third space? Is that what you're creating virtually? Because before people wanted to do it physically, and there's a gym call, it obviously, but um, it feels like everyone's got this virtual third space now where people can go and it's their office you know whether it's a cafe they've got gadgets so I saw someone the other day with three screens attached to their one laptop and it like folded mm. away into a napkin it was great but um yeah it feels like we're we're creating workplaces anywhere um, yeah yeah what, what's your feelings about that is that is that the way to go or do you think you still need to sort of define the space well I think it's a really complicated question and answer and no one size fits all anymore is what I really think so on Mm. one end you've got people who might be classed as office workers but who really are needed in the office they could be tech people or indeed they could work as cleaners and ancillary staff and there's lots of ways in which the office is still a place of presenteeism but increasingly and there's a big cultural war raging about this increasingly the office Uh, And around about a sixth of the world's working population work in the knowledge sector, i.e. the kind of office class. So even though the Mm. majority of people in the world do not work in offices, the office is sort of seen as a byword for work. Anyway, a lot of those office workers are absolutely redefining when and where and how and even why they work. And they are portable. They are mobile. They are moving between a fixed place, a virtual place, a drop-in place, a two, three days a week place. And I mean, I think as a sort of armchair sociologist, it's really interesting. But if I was a leader or a manager of a team, I would be finding life very complicated and stressful at the moment because one size fits all is much easier to manage. Yeah, and I, I think that's the key, isn't it, with the office and presenteeism in, in, in general. It's it's known, it's understood, and it's also their fiefdom, if that makes sense, for a lot of people. And I think that's why they've retreated back to that. It's interesting. Oh, I'm already off script as well. I'm going to just dive in. Um, it was interesting. I had Tim from um, Leesman Index, and um, he said something interesting. There's an inflection point happening at the moment, and nobody knows quite why. At the beginning or middle or end of the pandemic, everyone was saying the young people want to get back to the office. And now the data is showing quite the opposite that the old people don't want to come back to the office so it's i'm i'm throwing the floor open to you why do you think that sort of inflection point has sort of come to pass if you were you know you don't have to be right or wrong it's just what's your immediate sort of take on it well i mean tim oldman of leesman index is brilliant and some of their data is fantastic i talked to him for my podcast the nowhere Mm. office um which I co-present with Stefan Stern. And if I could just plug it, the Series 3 is starting on Friday. So that would be interesting um, for your listeners, perhaps, who want to dive deeper into this question. What I think is that the data is showing that everybody wants to have their cake and eat it. All generations, all demographics want 
to have a place to go, which is beautiful and gorgeous and has hot coffee and maybe hot showers and has got camaraderie and water coolers and desks and amenities, but they don't want to be told when and they want to have the flexibility. And this is uh, really widespread across all the generations. Um, Ipsos has done a lot of research on this. So the the, the dilemma is where's it going to settle up? And my observation and really the nowhere office is not an argument for or against the office. Um, the nowhere office is more an observation of a moment that we're in in the story of work. And I think we are nowhere where we're going to end up and we're nowhere near where we were. And that's because hybrid at the moment isn't really working very easily or well. It's a bit arbitrary. And so we're in a giant experiment. We're in the biggest workplace experiment in 100 years. Um, and it is making people uncomfortable. It's making lots of people jump up and down. I don't know if you if you caught that um, BBC News interviewed me today, actually, because Alan Sugar, Lord Sugar, a man who created a lot, made a lot of money on the technology that's about PCs and mobility, has gone on a rant against PwC workers having the temerity to have a few hours off on a Friday afternoon. You know, lots of people are really now... Um, becoming very politicised by the return to office discussion. Mm. I think it's much more interesting to frame it in terms of the evolution of people's um, behaviour in their lives and in their work and in technology's response to that work. That, to me, is the more interesting story. But inevitably, it's becoming political with those arguing, get back to the office, and those saying, we don't want to. I mean, you can understand why it's political, can't you? Because you've got the inequality argument to sort of come through. That seems to be a lot of what people are sort of unsure about, but they it's, they tend to have a strong feeling towards it or have a feeling that it's probably not going to go in my, my way. One, um, well, identity, you address it in the book and it remains uh, a hot button at the moment. It's come up a lot of times this season, you know, bringing yourself to work and that sort of stuff. Do you think hybrid working is going to be good for identity at work or cause more inequality? I want to talk about women separately, but just talk about identity for the beginning. Well, you've asked about three marvellous questions in one go. Let me just try and unpick that a bit. Why okay. is it political? It's political because there's a lot of economics at stake and a lot of old custom and practice. So city centres are losing out commercially to the suburbs, put simply. You know, if less people go through the little coffee shop down the road because less people are coming into the office, if less revenues come into the tube network, then the local businesses suffer. If mm. less people book office space, then there's a knock-on effect. So we are talking about a lot at stake, but we're also talking about a sort of redistribution so that the money does in fact go somewhere. It just gets spent differently like it gets spent in local town centres and is probably arguably discuss quite good for leveling up so that's one mm. bit of why is it political the second point about um haves and have-nots as i call them hybrid haves and have-nots is that it is political when you look at the fact that let's take a council a council where you have people on the streets emptying the rubbish in the parks um frontline services where their office is the street their office mm. is the services they have to go to the office they can't be at home and say well i'm going to phone in the bins right they can't mm. do that so they don't feel as equal in the choices as those people who can say i'll join the teams meeting at 9 15 so there is lots of inequality going on however there's lots of new opportunities. For instance, um, quite a lot of evidence is emerging, and I've put it in the book, and I've been giving interviews around the world on this that have, 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 have cemented my view on this, that there's actually a better form of equality sometimes for minority groups who, who feel that actually everybody being the same size on a Zoom call or on a Twitter space is more comfortable mm. and less discriminatory than all the other stuff. So that's one 
other way of looking at your question. And the final point about identity is that what I think is that before the pandemic, there was a sort of zenith of identity politics at work, the whole pronoun thing, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of money was spent, a lot of time was spent, a lot of culture war energy was spent about how you define yourself individually at work. My sense is, and I might be completely wrong, that there are really new priorities being drawn up that put the work itself at the centre because there's so many different competing challenges to work. Um, globalisation and inflation and economy, you know, we're all going to have to knuckle under to get the work done. Yeah, and paying I the believe, bills, yeah. Yeah, and I believe that a new and keeping the lights on in the businesses that have got all these competing headwinds and so on. I believe that new identities are going to emerge that are around your life stage in relation to the work, whether you are what I call a learner at the beginning of your career, a lever with family and caring responsibilities who's a bit older, or a leader who boundary spans across both. So I I'm calling it that there is an identity shift happening as well as everything else. Um, I want to talk specifically about women because there was a report came out by Deloitte recently and it said flexible working is only available to 33% of women. Uh, 60% say hybrid working makes them feel shut out. Um, 90% fear promotion possibilities will get worse. Uh, and that all of those numbers go up if you're LGBT plus and ethnic minority women. Um, it feels like the world of remote work and also hybrid work could quite easily be controlled by different levers. How do you think businesses should be using hybrid to avoid those outcomes and make a fairer workplace? What, what advice would you give leaders? Well, what I think is this, Paul, that a lot of business and organisations are appallingly run and managed. And what I think is, mm. I mean, just to just just to cut to the chase and perhaps not bother with niceties, <laughs> I think the Do work it. is fantastically dysfunctional. I mean, you only have to look at the fact that pre-pandemic, the World Health Organization declared burnout as an occupational um, hazard of of of, of life of, and 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 part of the classification of disease. Uh, it declared stress the biggest epidemic of the twenty first century. That was pre pandemic. Stress and work are very closely correlated. Just to give some data. Again, pre-pandemic, 60% of working days in the EU were lost to stress. 17.8 million working days in the UK. So let's not, I'm not suggesting you're doing this, but let's not look through rose-tinted glasses at the way work was working and office life was working. And mm. this sort of explains why now, when it comes down to it, all those habits that have been laid over two and a half years all that technology that's worked, all that connection to different values, different opportunities, people do not want to go back to the office. And all of that talk about, oh, we miss the office, we miss the water cooler, it's so marvellous. Well, do you know what? That's not being borne out by people's behaviour. And so mm. what you have is the extraordinary situation of Apple and Google and some of the sexiest tech companies on the planet facing pushback with people not wanting to come into the very citadels of presenteeism, the palaces of presenteeism that have been built over the last 15, 20 years. That is major. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Apple's sort of um, circle, whatever you want to call it, flying spaceship, uh, billion dollar HQ what was a reason you know you got to work there and it felt like almost a hallowed ground and that sort of thing. I don't think there's another office in the world that would even come close to sort of approaching that and saying yeah we hold our hands up and we have a great office not even google they've got fun offices you know and that sort of stuff they do great stuff and everyone's got different quirks and that sort of thing but it comes down to and i think this is another sort of area i want to touch on it comes down to the culture of your business doesn't it and this is something that a lot of businesses are struggling with but also i don't think the pandemic's necessarily made it worse i think it's shown it to be what it is or what it was and now they've got a real problem because they never really had a culture. And if a culture is, oh, we give you three hours off at the end on a Friday, some people call that summer hours as well. It's just, it's, you know, reacting to the the light sky. It, it I, really does sort of, oh, come. 
Yeah, I think you're right, Paul, that really all that's been uncovered is what was there anyway. I mean, I say that really, because what, what I've done in the book for Nowhere Office is really try and look at this moment and how we got here and to look in the in the context of, you know, work since the end of the Second World War. And that's an interesting starting point because the Second World War was the last time there was a great big global reset. And mm. the post-pandemic environment is one such moment, you know, united by getting back on our feet, getting back into, um, you know, a, 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 a living and working. And when you look at the history of work office work as I've done in that period, you see very clearly three different phases, I think. The first was what I would call the optimism years that sort of began in 1945, ran until about 1977 when technology was just beginning to sort of emerge meaningfully in offices, like the typewriter was replaced by a computer that was still quite over there, quite at the back of the room. But, you mm. know, technology was in the room by 1977. But up until that time period, you know, there was a simplicity, a naivety about office life, which is if you had the corner office, you were in charge. You were almost certainly likely to be male and white. Sexism was rife, the Mad Men era. You know, there was no real discussion mm. about flexibility. There was no... So, 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 so the optimism years marked the skyscraper era in which offices began to dominate. And if you look at the property data around the uh, building of office space in that time. It was just absolutely enormous, right? So that was the first phase. The second phase I call the mezzanine years, after a really wonderful novel called The Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker, which is a sort of existential musing on the meaning of work as one bloke goes on and off the escalator in a great big office block and muses on, you know, wonderful things like going to the loo and lunch breaks and coffee. And it represents the sort of moment, I think, that work became um, more complicated. You had large numbers of women entering the workforce and therefore the question of flexibility being addressed. You had civil rights, you had uh, um you had technology and so you had the rise of HR, you had the concept of stress, you had all sorts of things happening in a period that lasted through the 80s, obviously the great expansionary years of globalisation and into um, into the the new decade, the new century, when you had the arrival of the internet. And in 2007, I would say, but I mean, I've very happy to be challenged or to have people come up with different historical framing. These are just the ones I've come up with. I would say that in 2007, when Airbnb started, when the iPhone began, when uh, Facebook and Twitter, you had a new era I call the co-working years. And really, you could say that the nowhere office, which obviously began with the pandemic in 2020, directly derived from that moment, which is the internet killed the office, not the pandemic. I, I really like that. There's a couple of things I need to pick up on. Number one, co-working. What's your what's your thought on it? Obviously, the data is out there. They struggled through the pandemic. The ones that didn't own their, uh, what do you call it, locations. Um, other ones that did are doing well. They're announcing mergers and that sort of thing. Um, and then the second one I wanted to talk about was a quote from Michael Bloomberg. But, but let's stick with co-working for a sec. Well, I think the co-working model in offices is the one that will prevail and win out. It's not to say that there aren't some um, winners and losers. I think that Second Home, which is was a tremendously innovative co-working space, is under pressure. We mm. work, as we know, is sort of reinventing itself and has done a partnership with Cushman and Wakefield, the property group, Canary Wharf, absolutely a citadel of presenteeism i mean my god you never got out of canary wharf if you went down there to work <laughs> has in fact done a has done a deal with co-working the co-working model of dropping in and dropping out and having a kind of live work vibe where you're comfortable and cozy but you can you know beetle off and have your headphones on or have a meeting i think that is the model that all offices are going to reconfigure around anyway so but I also think that much more interesting collaborative tech platforms are emerging, um, like Groove.io is is a, I think it's actually Groove.app, Groove that 
um, is operating and obviously you've got your uh, your your meta connection and, and workspace and so on there are lots mm-hmm. of really interesting collaborative innovations happening and here's something else that you may throw your hands up in horror over but I'm gonna say it I think that collaboration does not happen best in offices I think collaboration now happens better on technology as a rule of thumb I think what happens Ooh. best I think what happens best in offices is argument, disagreement, gossip, networking, and learning. But and actually, wh- why do you think that? Well, because I think that being present in person is a dimension. You know, that's why I think the metaverse is really interesting. Because mm-hmm. I think without a doubt, the metaverse, you know, it's had some false starts. You know, I never wanted to put on an avatar and trundle around second home, but I know lots of people who did. But I mean, having looked fairly closely um, at at the AI and the VR that's coming down the track, it's going to be a game changer. There's just no doubt about it, because people want to be in different spaces physically in different dimensions, just like people want to be resting and active. They want to be fit and they doing you know keep fit and then they want to sit down and break bread with somebody these are different ways of being and so i think that collaboration which traditionally happened with post-it notes in a room is migrating technologically just like meetings are migrating technologically i don't think it's going to be possible to have a full in-person meeting company-wide ever again i think people will always now be partly hybrid what will happen in person is the special stuff. Like in a family, the special stuff is everybody gathers for the Seder, everybody gathers for the bre- for the birthday, everybody gathers for the anniversary, and it's very poor form if you're not there. But that's yeah. not the same as everybody turning up all the time for breakfast. Do you know what I mean? No, I agree. I agree. I think there's some interesting points I would I would challenge you on there, just about the metaverse. I think it's interesting when whenever you see a pr video for it or even like the promotional here's the metaverse you're welcome you know we 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 clone the thing our thing um everything i've seen is a four-walled uh machination of an office and it's like you you got given a blank canvas and you've tried to imprison us again with everything that we've just tried to escape and that's why i think the metaverse is going to have a real problem getting going for, for number one, the creative reason. Also, it's very hard for people to sort of create those things. They're definitely coming out swinging, saying it's it's just as easy as telling something what you need, which that's the way they should have done it to start with. But the other thing I think is just when you look at the numbers of VR headsets out there and you look at the price points of where they are and you look at where a lot of the world is economically, that's a two, three, four, five year horizon that people are going to struggle with this. The metaverse is, I think, a 10 year plus vision of where they are sort of going to go and getting to and we're all going to go but my issue isn't necessarily with that it's the interoperability with it nobody likes to play with a, with each other now let alone in 10 years when things are going to but be i said, think a bit more aggressive but we said that about zoom i mean before the pandemic it was completely uncool to say i'll i'll meet you on zoom it was like it, it you know things change very very fast i'm not in any shape or form defending it and I'm a big in real life person. I mean, I've run person to person networks for a very long time, but I used to be much more cynical. And now I think that our relationship to technology has been transformed by the universal adoption of it through the t- through the pandemic. And what I think it's done is collided with a latent set of desires to be. Um, fully mobile, fully flexible. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need boundaries. The biggest problem is exactly that point you've made, albeit indirectly, about um, about walls and ceilings and space, is that people both need to be contained and they don't like it when they are. So they like the freedom to go around the water cooler because it wastes time. Yeah. They like that. So there's something confining and inescapable about being in a in a technological room and definitely what's a total turn off for people is the surveillance 
But to your point about VR headsets, I think the more interesting comparison, although I don't doubt that you're right about the time it will take to adopt it, but I think the more interesting comparison is to look up the data on office chair market share and how that is growing. And let me tell you, it is dwarfed by the rise of VR headsets. It's interesting as well, because just on that sort of, uh, you know, the data point, I think it was Lehman actually who said it, um, 30% of people still don't have the right chair. You know, after three years, there's an argument to say that I'm I'm not sure where the money is coming from to buy these VR kits. I certainly know that a lot of companies don't have four hundred pounds plus. I don't know the price and what it will be, obviously, but um, to sort of pay I for everyone to have those. I don't. Again, not to push back, but do you know how much American companies spent a week at the beginning of the pandemic on tech? Oh God, probably. Well, it just shows you what they didn't have to start with. <laughs> One and a half billion dollars a week. Okay, but so the truth is the money can be found and oh, the money always, can be yeah. repurposed. And that's what's really interesting about all of this is that what are we trying to achieve here? What does success look like? To me, the word is work. It's about the work. I'm pro work. I think we all need and can enjoy our work. And I think work has been less enjoyable and less functional and less productive and an awful lot of money and time and management has been wasted that's the big shake-up that to me is what's super super exciting about this whole discussion yeah i think it's i mean we've still got the hierarchy we've still got the power structures they're hard to let go of but they do seem like their days are numbered and i think the metaverse is an exciting area where if you look at who owns it at the moment it's 16 rich white people at the top of vc firms i worry that the future of it is going to be as utopian as a lot of people sort of hope but when you think about gen alphas you know those people who are coming into the workplace and coming up the ranks and uh, DAOs and that sort of stuff what do you think and this is wildest dream times the structure of business will be like um, do you think it's that we, you know, could we argue that we just need more holacracies in the world? Well, holacracies don't turn out to be as fabulous as all of that, because the fact of the matter is that there are all sorts of iterative stages in relationships where mm. something that worked three weeks ago doesn't work so much now. And, you know, what I think is probable at the moment, and I cast to 2025 in my book, what I think is probable is that the, and preferable, is that time scale and timeline is shortened. Uh, and instead of all this rubbish about five year plans and quarterly reviews and all that stuff, it becomes much more we're trying this for six months and then mm. we're going to see. And then we're going to try something else. And we're going to literally be local. I mean, you take a lot of the big tech companies the truth is they're run from california they're not devolved they're not yeah. local and that's not going to work anymore and so i think what you may find in fact I, I chaired a discussion in new york a couple of weeks ago for the nowhere office for new series we've gone kind of global and i chaired a discussion with a lot of c-suite executives and somebody said something really interesting to me which is he said look i don't think you're going to have a, an h a single hq in a city you might have 30 scattered across the near suburbs mm. you know so i think that the 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 linear skyscraper mobile you know upwardly mobile there's only one way is up model that you're attracting talent because they want to get to the corner office they want the pay and perks they want the job for life we know that that started to end a long time ago and mm. now what we're going to have is much more itinerant migrant emigre type relationships to work where you give of your best for a shorter period of time and i think this is going to be revolutionary for the professional classes and for brands but i do also think that in the end work still has some very basic features which is what needs to be done and what's the remuneration and what's the system and that is still about fairness and visibility of of management and um and skills and yeah. attitude, you know. It, so let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and go, oh, it's all going to be fabulous and new and strange. And no, I think it's just going to be about patching together a very new model and a very new measure 
of what work successfully looks like. And I'm really just in favour of that. I'm a real advocate for changing it up. Yeah, no, I am as well. I think flexibility in the workplace is one of the things that not only will attract people to you, but it's also going to be necessary in the future because I think the last three years have taught people a lot. Like, you've only got a few years on this, you know, green, green blue marble. You, how do you want to use them? You know, and I think a lot of, and I don't think people are just like escaping jobs because they didn't like them. I think they're escaping bad managers. And I think more and more you're starting to sort of see people go like, I know that I'm happiest when I'm on holiday. So I'm going to go and travel and also work and that sort of stuff. Or I'm going to go and work for myself. The, the options, that's the current, that's the theme that sort of goes goes through everything. And the options that isn't one single place. It feels like, you know, that's old thinking almost. It's sort of coming out. I love the, the quote in the book from Michael Bloomberg uh, when they were de- when he was describing his office. Um, this building is designed for our employees so that they can be productive and happy in their environment and be proud of where they work. And then for visitors, for customers, for prospective employees, friends and relatives, you want people to walk out and say, I want to work there or I want to deal with this company. And I'm just like, oh, if somebody forced me to go into an office at the moment, I'd think less of them. It's kind of the opposite. Well, isn't it? and, it's- and I'm going to be mean. I'm going to tell you a Bloomberg story because I actually worked hundreds of years ago for Mike Bloomberg. I'm full mm. of admiration for him. When oh, he first, yeah, opened, uh, you know, I think he's tremendous. When he first opened his London office with the all you can eat buffet and the sparkly escalator, you know, this was, he set the bar. And the reason why I use the example of the great, Bloomberg building, the greenest, fanciest building in the city of London, is to say that I think the era of that palace of presenteeism is over. But here's another thing, and I feel a bit mean saying it, but I'm going to say it. I've been interviewed quite a lot about the book by Bloomberg. They mm. they are, you know, not surprisingly, very across this subject. And I was invited into their office in New York for a, a, a meeting with some people. And the COVID regulations and the logging in to that building were so onerous. They were oh. more onerous than getting into the country. I was sent two hours before the meeting um, documents that I had to upload. I had to present myself for a COVID test. I had to register. And after 10 minutes, I said to the bank of people at reception that were enforcing this, I'm afraid I don't want to enter your building. And I emailed the journalist and I said, I'm terribly sorry, but I'll be at the coffee shop around the corner if you'd like to join me, which they did. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I'm on the book circuit here. I shouldn't be telling a journalist that I'm too posh to push but I just thought I'm not doing this and actually I felt thought afterwards that's a metaphor we don't want that nonsense we don't want that you know it's even a commute getting into a building getting through the turnstile showing your security logging in people just don't want that anymore do you think that's really what the, the issue was, is with, that we had the commute and people's over-reliance on email and we weren't very efficient communicators and there was a, a cover-your-ass culture? I don't think I've found a company that doesn't have one. Um, do you think that we've just swapped that for channels and you can work on a couch? I think it's part of it. I think what it is, is it's like I come back to the word relationship and I come back to the concept of family because... We're people. We're humans. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how fancy schmancy our job titles are. It doesn't matter how whiz bang the tech is. If a human is behind it, the human has emotions, the human has behavioral drivers, all the stuff you've been covering with people, you know, utterly brilliant uh, and beyond my pay grade on your on your mouthwash series so far. And the truth is that people have feelings and they don't want to be mucked about. And they don't want their time wasted and they don't want microaggressions and they don't want the cost in time of a commute when they're going to get there and they're going to sit in a meeting when during the pandemic they could do the same. What they want to do, I think, is do good work, well managed, well paid, well run, suited to Mm. their skills, where when they come together to go into an office, it is because it makes sense to them to do so. And if it doesn't make sense to them to do so, they won't do it. And that's why I'm beginning to think that this whole 3-2 business is about as sort of manufactured as the 5-2 diet. You can Ooh. say, oh, let's do the 3-2. But it's not 
how meaningful is it for some people being shift working as if you were a blue collar worker in a white collar environment might be by far the most sensible thing to do and for others gathering once every six months is absolutely fine you know mm. I, I did the uh, wonderful bruce daisley eat sleep work repeat podcast i did that and he had the um chat from the slack think tank um report on that slack have been very innovative in the way they've said to their workforce you know we get together in an immersive brainstorm way and everything in between can be fully remote brian chesky of um uh airbnb has has written as i think what will be a very significant memo last week not just saying that airbnb will be fully remote but saying that's because he thinks the way the world is going is that everybody is just permanently in rotation mm. so the truth is there are different trends in different industries and different age groups and different demographics and it's all up in the air and the struggle for businesses and leaders and politicians and goodness knows functions like poor old hr is they can't stick the plaster anywhere to to stem the you know the blood the blood on the floor of everybody going we're out of here as it was <laughs> what a metaphor i love it um it's true though isn't it hr does have a, r a rough gig at the moment um but you could argue they should have seen it coming um a lot of the things you've mentioned so surveillance tech you mentioned earlier and that sort of thing uh you know how people are managing that the iceberg really in the room is trust, right? It's come up several times this season. Um, I'm still not sure what the future is when it comes to how we'll be all working together. Um, we've never had more freedom, but we've also never had more surveillance tech being brought by big and small firms, shockingly small firms as well. What advice do you have for leaders when it comes to thinking about the future of how their workforce will be working vis-a-vis -vis trust? How do they trust their people more? Or do they just have to recognise, oh God, I think we've got a huge problem and start managing people out? Well, I've done an interview with Stefan Sturm, my co-presenter on the podcast with the great Nicholas Bloom of Stanford, who's done so much of the recent academics and research on this subject and it's coming out this week. And he talks very interestingly about inputs and outputs. In other words, if what you're doing is measuring people on the input because you're monitoring their keystrokes, because you're looking at when they're in doing abc that's a very different model to saying get the output done do it by such and such you've got three months so trust is within that and trust is one of the icebergs for sure mm -hmm. and managers and leaders do historically find it difficult to trust but i wonder whether we're looking at the wrong thing when we talk only about trust i think it's about what you're measuring and how you're measuring it a bit like with health and physical health we've learned to count carbs as well as calories we've learned to count high intensity as opposed to long slog you know what are you measuring as the successful result of the work? Is it that you were monitored, which in itself then implies a lack of trust? Or is it that you did a project by also managing to go to the gym, do your shopping, deal with your caring responsibilities, go and lie on a beach? And coming back to this thing I said about the, the sort of historical framing of the nowhere office's origins something else very important happened in 2007 the beginning of what i call the co-working years the beginning of airbnb and facebook and twitter and uh, iphone and it was this it was the publication of a book called the four hour work week by tim ferris tim ferris yeah tim ferris who i once managed to meet because I used every single network I possessed because I was such a fangirl of his. <laughs> and I do think he's extraordinary. That book was the game changer because that book said two things. One is, and it was on the bestseller list for seven years. That book said two things. One was you can work from anywhere and do a lot more in a lot less. But the second thing it said was, 
work is really important and you have to do it well and you have to please your bosses and you have to have integrity and passion for what you do. In other words, it was not what quite a lot of discussion since has become, which is quite a lot of sort of, oh, work's horrid. Oh, none of us want to work. Oh, we want to work the four-day week. It's like, mm, we want to have life balance and we want to work productively work can and should be good. And so I just think that it's really important that when we frame all these discussions about trust and control and monitoring and turning up and pattern and measurement, it's got to be predicated on the idea that work should be great. I really believe that. Work yeah. should be largely great. I mean, I'm not saying you've all got to feel like Picasso every five minutes. Yeah. But work should feel rewarding, valuable, valued. And that's what I want leaders. I don't really like the L word, you know, because I think an awful lot has been put in. I'm a leader with a capital L. But I think that's what those who are paid as leaders, call themselves leaders, trained as leaders should be thinking about, which is, can I listen more? to the change that is all around so that I can make work better, so that we can be more productive, more engaged, fairer, and get this job, whatever this job is done, in this new hybrid world, which is around us anyway. And forget all the old stuff. So I would say, if you had to sort of ask me, you know, what's the one word? I'm not sure it is trust. I think it's control. Oh, I, I definitely think control is, is a very, very big part of the future of the office. And I hope more, I hope it shifts to both parties, if that makes sense, rather than overlords and, you know, the the, the workforce. It feels mm -hmm. like that's a smarter way for any business to run at the moment. I think if the mm -hmm. last three years has taught a business anything is there's a lot of people underneath you that have good ideas and that can make stuff work, you know. And I think more and more people are starting to sort of figure out maybe seeing people in different light and that sort of thing. But also, you've got to be honest with the realities of the workplace and work market at the moment. They can leave and there's other options out there for them. So, again, it's sort of yeah. helping those people give give their best to you at a fair price. I think it's Kim Scott, isn't it, who has the Just Work Firm and Fair um, book out. And it's amazing. It's just very, you know, matter of fact, here's how to negotiate. Here's how to handle, um, you know, uh, aggression and that sort of thing. It's just it is it feels like the future book that people should be reading or pe pe every leader should be given, if that makes sense. It's just it, it, it feels mine, like the future of, course, of it. Paul. <laughs> other than yours of course no, yours is like making the best office and everything yeah yeah um right okay well let's leave it there but before we end there's uh desert island tweets the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way so if you turn your um attention to the nest for those who are listening live you will see a tweet by um the should we say semi-controversial or totally controversial whichever way you fit on the spectrum from jk rowling uh if you want to follow her and that's your own choice it's at jk underscore rowling r-o-w-l-i-n-g uh she's the author of harry potter books um and the tweet says, I like to think of myself as an equal opportunities offender. And she is replying to a tweet by Max Rothbart. Hopefully I'm saying his name right. Um, you are probably one of the only authors to have both far right and the far left burning your books. Why did you choose this one? Well, I slightly chose it because you put me on the spot yesterday and had to explain at great uh, patient length to me what you meant by choose a desert island tweet. And I partly <laughs> chose it because... In the river of tweets, it would have taken me 24 hours to scroll through people that I follow to find the tweet that possibly was more properly Desert Islandy for me. So that's the caveat is I chose good, a tweet. Good caveat. But, right. But I chose this tweet because I think that the arguments that are raging about who is right and who is wrong about anything are illustrative of the pickle we've got ourselves into and is being played out, funnily enough, around work. Like, as I say, this evening, I was on BBC News explaining why I think Alan Sugar sounds like a bit of a ninny for saying that people who work flexibly are lazy so-and-sos. We've got to stop being antagonistic with each other. We've got to start understanding and hearing each other. 
And J.K. Rowling put her neck out by talking about um, the rights of biologically born women. And she did not say that she was anti-people who want to change their sexual uh, identity or their genders, but she said she didn't want to row back the rights for women. And she faced an enormous, you don't need me to tell you, tsunami of hatred and opposition. But in a way, she has been a trendsetter for the moment that we're now finding ourselves in, which is we're all still living on the same planet, breathing the same air, you know, having to work our way through this. And so for me, it's quite a symbolic tweet that you, you've got to see both sides. You've got to come together. You've got to get round the table. And I think we're having to reach that point about work. So even though the tweet I chose is nothing to do with the world of work, I'm making, if you'll forgive me, the metaphorical leap, the allegorical leap, that it could be about any of these cultural uh, danger points we're finding ourselves in. And just to be clear, I think we are at a dangerous inflection point in the narrative around work. I think it is important that we both hear and argue with the Alan Sugars of this world, the David Solomons of Goldman Sachs, who say that working from home is an aberration. But mm. I also think we should hear those people that you've highlighted that say, you know what, there may be different inequalities coming down the track for women or for minorities if you're not in the office being seen. So there's tough stuff to talk through and to listen through and to get around the table or the Twitter space, or the metaverse, to noodle mm -hmm. through. And that's why I chose that tweet. That's why I chose but that tweet. I thought it was an interesting choice, and I fully stand by your choice to choose it. So, yeah. Um, okay, that is a wrap on episode 14 of season four. My thanks to Julia Hosram for a lot of food for thought about the future of hybrid working and work in general. Um, it's clear it's not going to be uh, a quick solution for many, but there are lots who are making it work already. And I think others are hopefully seeing merit in making it work uh, faster, fairer, and that sort of thing. Um, follow Julia on Twitter, get the book, The Nowhere Office, and sign up to the podcast and Substack on juliahobsborne.substack.com juliahobsborne.substack.com or you can pop over to juliahobsborne.com or .co.uk and it'll all be over there as well um julia any final words of advice for listeners oh just you know keep talking about it thinking about it and figuring it out workplace by workplace I love it. My, my my tip is always ask for things. People usually give them to you. You just have to be nice. You know, that's something. Um, okay, up next on Mouthwash is David Berkus. He is one of the world's leading business thinkers and organisational psychologists. We're going to be talking about the big one, the workplace culture, the myth and the opportunity. So I urge you to tune in. Uh, I'm going to be asking big questions. It's going to be feisty, that's for sure. Um, if you want, uh, head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text so you never miss a minute. Mouthwash is produced by Suze and the team at Big Tent media and uh, you can uh, find out anything you want over at mouthwashshow.com i'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days we remember the moments and i hope this has been one for you um i am paul armstrong this is mouthwash listen in again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident thanks for listening to mouthwash please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors Season four of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy-to-use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.